linking this to Tyree Nichols. Some of those isms that caused those police officers to beat that poor man. Actually, we have our own version of those isms in medicine, a lot of them. A lot of them that lead to biases, that lead to misapplication of science. Keep in mind, sometimes it's the willing who do the wrong thing, even. I mean, good people who want to do the right thing, and they just don't understand. That was Otis Brawley, Bloomberg Distinguished Professor of Oncology and Epidemiology at Johns Hopkins University and co-editor of the Cancer History Project. I'm Matthew Ong, Associate Editor of The Cancer Letter. In light of the brutal beating and death of Tyree Nichols, a 29-year-old black man at the hands of five police officers in Memphis, we believe that it is important to openly discuss the structural biases and racism that are present in law enforcement as well as in healthcare and medicine. In this episode, Brawley speaks with Robert Wynn, director of the Virginia Commonwealth University Massey Cancer Center and guest editor of the Cancer History Project during Black History Month. Both physicians have had potentially deadly encounters with police. Brawley was thrown to the ground and held at gunpoint for standing in the garage of his own home. Wynn was thrown to the ground and held at gunpoint for walking toward his own car. In this conversation, Brawley and Wynn discuss the racial and class power dynamics in American society and why physicians and healthcare professionals have a responsibility to reflect on the problems in policing and identify areas where these problems are also present in healthcare. I'm Otis Brawley, and I'm a medical oncologist, and I'm here with my good friend, Rob Wynn, who is uh, director of the Massey Cancer Center at Virginia Commonwealth University. And we are two major players in oncology. We both happen to be black men. And uh, with the events in the last uh, several weeks involving uh, Tyree Nichols in Memphis, Tennessee, we thought we should have a chat because both of us have in the past talked about our experiences with police, our experiences in society growing up. Uh, I'll start out by simply saying, I personally think that there is a problem in the United States with police and policing, and it's a cultural problem It has to do with biases and disrespect. Uh, We can talk about whether it's biases and disrespect because of race or because of social positioning. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there is a problem in policing, and unfortunately, the police are not ready to deal with it. Now, we are in medicine, and I think it's a good time to actually think if some of these problems that we see in policing that actually do go into the rest of society actually transcend into medicine. And that's an area where we actually can do something about it and can be leaders in bringing about change. And so, uh, Brother Wen, thank you for joining me in this conversation. And, uh, you know, it's been two years since George Floyd and now he's seen Tyree Nichols, and along the way we've had Breonna Taylor and so many others who have been abused by police. Um, 
My first question for you is why do you think it's important that we as physicians and public health professionals have an understanding of these issues in depth and, and think about them broadly? Yeah. Um, and by the way, Dr. Brawley, I want to um, thank you uh, for all that you have and continue to do, um, particularly in bringing light to these issues um, that really impact our communities and our patients. Um, <laughs> I was thinking of, as you were talking uh, about a, a line, and just for transparency's sake, my brother just retired um, um, from the police force as a state trooper. And I remember when um, we had been talking at some point, it came up that uh, uh, the saying that when you're black in America, there is no such thing as a routine traffic stop. And that extends to when you're black in America and you wind up going to an ER for certain problems, that many things that should be routine um, are not, that are really impacted by historical, uh, uh, you know, things that have happened long before us um, and continue to impact both not only policing, uh, but I still think what we do in making sometimes unconscious biased decisions about, for example, uh, the lack of African-Americans wanting to be on clinical trials. Actually, I think that that is a myth. You know, I still think to this day that if you were to ask first um, and be able to communicate effectively, we'd have many more um, people from uh, African-American and many other communities, including rural communities, wanting to be on clinical trials. So I'll, I'll start there by sort of saying that, uh, you know, it did um, make me think uh, this uh, weekend that um, 32 years after Rodney King, uh, two years after George Floyd, that uh, uh, this is like deja vu all over again, except for I think this time it may be a little different. Yeah. Now, uh, some of the folks who are listening to this or reading this may not be aware, but two years ago, you and I both wrote pieces for the cancer letter talking about our negative experiences uh, with the police throughout our years. Uh, I, in particular, was an aide to the Surgeon General and a tenured researcher at the NIH, but I found myself face down in my driveway, handcuffed for opening my garage door. And then uh, uh, when they saw that I had a military ID, uh, one of the police, and by the way, one was black, one was white, actually challenged my military ID's validity because they decided that I was too young to be the rank on my ID. Some of these things get really, really stupid that the police do. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, we see a lot of these things and it's some kind of bias. Uh, it's a disrespect. And it's not all police. There, there's three kinds of police. There's the police who do this, the police who let it happen, and the police who are ignorant to the fact that it's happening. And I'm worried that in medicine, uh, there, you know, we've had recently an article at uh, medical students at a major university, I'll tell you, it was the University of Virginia, thought that Black people don't feel pain the way white people feel. 
Black people do it too. I, I hear about Black breast cancer as if it's a proud thing among Black women. They're talking about triple negative disease. La last time I looked at it, 20% of Black women have it and 12% of white women have it. Now we're going to claim it as Black breast cancer. Uh, I, help me out here. We got to get away from some of these labels and the bias, and we need to start respecting each other and being concerned about each other. I, you know, I absolutely uh, couldn't agree with you more. Um, going back to your first point, it was senseless. Um, the use of appropriate uh, policing um, uh, is always in order. In fact, my brother would say that the people we don't know most, but the people who dislike that kind of bad policing um, are good are good police. Yeah. And so as I think about that, I think about, you know, that in the context of also, you know, you were mentioning you, uh, for me, you know, having uh, the only time I've, I said that I've actually had guns pulled out on me and been also when I've been actually encountering law enforcement, it wasn't by some sort of gang or anything like that. Um, and the most interesting thing is both of us probably, uh, you know, uh, and we could put in our category, Henry Lewis Gates, Remember oh, yes. that oh, he yeah. had to try to get into his old house. So, you know, so so I only say that to say that class does not protect um, whether it's in law enforcement yeah. nor actually in medicine. Um, you know, you and I have talked about that. Sometimes we have these feelings like African-Americans do less well from things like multiple myeloma until we actually have studies like universe, the ones that are out of University of uh, um, uh, Madison College of Wisconsin and other things that are looking at multiple myeloma and, and actually showing that if you give the appropriate access to care, it may not be the be on end all, but it certainly reduces the disparities. And so it's not so much my biology is a major driver, but those things around that biology. And, and, I, and I, I hope that not only will we grow um, as a society, and being much more thoughtful around policing. But I also think that we will take this moment um, of Tyree's death to actually figure out how many of us in the medical community said, or at least stated, that we wanted to be better, that we wanted to do things better after George Floyd's death. That's only two years ago. Yeah. The reality is I hope that with Tyree's death, that one of the good things that could come out of this would be for us to take a pause and be all recommitted as many of us were at the time that George Floyd actually was also murdered in front of all of our eyes. So in, in, that, in that extends to healthcare. I think many yeah. of us in the cancer world said, how could we make access to care more better? And how can we address these issues? Because sometimes there's the DWB driving while black but I think that there's also that that sort of same phenomena when we're talking about our patients that just simply being black means that you, in some cases, say it's our biology and not looking at other things that happen in context of the ZNA or the zip code neighborhood association or other factors that also play a role. Yeah, yeah. you and I are great believers that it, the ZNA or the zip code is far more important than the DNA in many of these issues. And indeed, there are studies going back to the 1990s that show that equal treatment yields equal outcome amongst equal people, but there is not equal treatment. Let me just go into my, my disease. Uh, 
Black men who have stage three prostate cancer are twice as likely to die as white men in the United States. When they're treated in American College of Surgeons certified hospitals that have a cancer program, they're only one and a half times as likely to die. But when they're treated in some of the premier hospitals in the United States, there's equal treatment yields equal outcome. It's black and white one-to-one -one in terms of outcome. And so here we have in prostate cancer clearly a problem that a large number of black men, actually some white men too, don't get good treatment. I suspect the same is true in breast cancer. I suspect the same is true in a myriad of cancers. And I think the way to overcome implicit bias, and all of us have it, but the way to overcome it is to realize that these disparities exist, number one, and two, try to do your best to give your best care to every patient in front of you. Get back to basic principles. You know, who was it? Was it, is it Peabody who said the, the secret in caring for the patient is caring for the patient? It's caring for the patient. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Otis, yeah. you know, you, you bring up a good point um, and you bring up a good point that I think is, as we started this conversation, the broad things of how we can address this, you know, this issue. Uh, number one, it turns out that just sensitivity training alone for policemen and, quote, sensitivity or diversity, equity sort of modules that get just taught about unconscious bias may not just simply be enough. I think, you know, what we really ought to get to is what you just said. And some of that can't be policed and some of that can't be driven by law. Some of that's going to have to be instilled in a culture, uh, you know, of medicine and hopefully in policing that every person does count. And that the truth of the matter is, see the person in front of you, not your image of what you think about them. Now, someone said the other day, the Tyree thing is very different than the thing from George Floyd, because, well, with George Floyd, the uh, policemen that, that were doing that were predominantly white. And in this case, policemen were um, all African-American. And I essentially said that that is actually in a, in, incorrect. Policemen still see even whether they're black, Asian, or white, based on the way, you know, sometimes uh, that unit is taught or that the culture of that unit, that they would treat an African-American different than they would treat a white person. Yeah, it's, a, the same power, it, it's a power dynamic. It's now, a power it, dynamic. Yeah, and, um, and I worry about that power dynamic in medicine as well. Uh, exactly. In these tags of that, Black men just come out, you know, do worse from prostate cancer as if it's a gospel truth without understanding that it takes a, probably a little more data or that, you know, we do worse in lung cancer. We have the data to show it. But the question is, what's the why? And the why is not frequently as easy as, well, because I'm black, <laughs> you know, and in fact, we usually are fascinated and we push lots of dollars towards really getting down to uh, the molecular and submolecular levels of science and molecular therapies and these types of deals. And we're always asking, well, the additional why question, but it turns out when it comes to issues around population health, health delivery, implementation, sciences, 
sometimes we don't have the same patience. And particularly when it comes to health systems and they're dealing with collecting data, using data in appropriate ways and making sure that all people have the access to the same care in the same manner. Those are actually also important questions. And I'm not sure that we do that as well as we could. Yeah, you know, I'm also concerned in medicine that we are letting the perception of biologic differences amongst the races. Keep in mind, I think race is a sociopolitical categorization. Area of geographic origin, you know, there's some biological differences there. But when we start talking about area of geographic origin, when we talk about Black people or people of dark skin, there's well over a hundred of those in Africa. And when we talk about area of geographic origin amongst Caucasians, there's more than 600 of those that have been identified in Europe and, and Eurasia. Uh, and so I, I think race is just too big a thing. And it's really sociopolitical. But I, getting back to my original point, I think we worry too much about racial differences in biology and not the true racial issue, which is getting all people adequate care. Oh, and, man. And you, you said it. And by the way, also recognizing that structure matters. That's right. And, as we get adequate care, we also have to account for the structures that are sometimes even creating um, and contributing to the disease. So I am so happy that what you just said is that when we now talk about ancestry and we talk about African-Americans with ancestry, we, we don't recognize that everyone has ancestry. And in fact, if you trace some of these things back to ancestral markers, as opposed to just black, for example, I thought that the work from Lisa Newman uh, and um, and I think it was uh, Melissa Davis was actually important about, you know, women, African-Americans who were considered African-Americans with triple negative breast cancers and saying that if you had more Eastern African uh, descent or ancestry as opposed to Western African ancestry, there was a difference in outcome. I actually think that that goes beyond just people who are, quote, Black, which is a social construct to fit to everyone, whether you're Asian, Latino uh, or Caucasian. Um, and I think that an awakening and an awareness of that will be helpful as we try to come up with new therapies, as opposed to using the shorthand black and using the shorthand white for everything. I think that hopefully as we progress, those titles will become things and, and those tags will hopefully become relics of the past. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to talk about this later on in this talk, but since you brought up uh, uh, two extraordinary scientists, uh, I, I personally, as I grow to be an old man, am very pleased with the young folks coming up and their just absolutely amazing contributions in this area to help us understand it better. Uh, you know, I'm especially fond of Lisa because I've been able to watch her grow over the last 25 to 30 years. Uh, but uh, what do you think... Uh, senior leaders in healthcare, black and white, need to be doing in this area. And tell me a little about what you think about the next generation of healthcare. Then I'm gonna go back to what I was originally gonna to talk to you about or ask you about. So, you know, thank you for asking that question. I, I think that, you know, I'm gonna make a parallel to what's happening in law enforcement to uh, medicine. And the first is, 
the reality is that you more diverse voices at the table do matter. And um, ultimately understanding that you're picking the best and the brightest to be able to form the job matter. Um, I think in law enforcement, it's becoming clearer that what happened in Memphis and the uh, speed in which it happened of getting the information out, of being able to deal with things in large part was due because there was a different type of leader at the helm. I, I would say that when I think about Massey Cancer Center and I think about the next generation of leaders, um, having um, you know the first woman of color now be the cancer center director at University of New Mexico doesn't guarantee, but allows for a different voice to be at the table and different perspectives. Now, having said that, it doesn't mean that, uh, as I told someone as a cancer center director here at VCU Massey, that just because I'm an African-American doesn't mean that all I'm focused on is African-Americans. It's as if I were the governor of the state. I have multiple constituencies to be um, concerned about, including white rural uh, and, and uh, folks who are well off. My number one goal is to make sure that anybody with cancer certainly uh, benefits from having our cancer center. But I don't want to pretend that I come in maybe different than some of my colleagues from not just being an African-American, but maybe from a class sort of perspective, with also understanding some of the structural issues that are contributing to diseases, maybe in a little bit more of a nuanced way than maybe others. Having said that, I think our future is bright. You have folks like John Carpton. You have, you know, like I said, Melissa, Lisa Newman, Brian Rivers. There are a host, <clears throat> you know, Chanita Hughes-Halbert. There, there are a host of new and up-and-coming researchers, both in the, uh, uh, the, the, the basic science, translational, clinical, and data field. Uh, and I'm feeling very comfortable that uh, if you look at cancer center directors in 1971 and you now look at 2023, we have women... We have people from underrepresented groups. And as a result of that, I think we've made over the last several years significant strides and progress in, quote, normalizing the concept that while people may look different on the outside, there are some core things that we all have to do to deliver the best, the highest care, and that our research matters for all of them. Yeah. Yeah. Getting back to where I was going to go first. Um, Tell me what you think of this. I worry about people who mean well, but don't understand the entire situation. Mm. Uh, you know, we have people who are pro-life, but once the child is born, they don't care about the child's upbringing and education and grooming and healthcare. We have, you might say, instead of being pro-life, they should say they're pro-birth because they're not really pro-life because life is taking care of the person after they're born. Um, we have people who are nowadays going to very resource-poor hospitals that take care of a lot of people who are from socioeconomically deprived backgrounds. And they're pushing programs on these resource poor program, uh, programs to try to help poor people. For example, uh, you know, I was director of the cancer center at Grady Hospital, which is an inner city county facility. It's a safety net hospital. 
Uh, there's common now for people to try to go and get places like Grady to do lung cancer screening. <laughs> lung cancer screening is a wonderful thing. It saves lives. It does have some drawbacks that we don't talk about enough, but it does net save lives. I like to point out the study that shows that it works was done in 30 of the finest hospitals in the country. And it showed that for every 5.4 lives you save, you kill one person. So benefits and harms. But if you go down to Grady and you start doing lung cancer screening, you make the line for that four CT scanners at Grady longer. You actually create disparities and worsen the care of people who need that CT scanner by making the line longer. There, by the way, the current director of the cancer center at Grady is constantly got folks saying, why aren't you doing lung cancer screening? I just told you why. Uh, that's just one example. We have, we have a medical system that is segregated by socioeconomics and separate cannot be equal, separate is not equal. People who are poor who go to these resource-strapped hospitals and clinics do not get the same quality of care as people who go to the places uh, that accept the private insurances. Uh, and I've been preaching, you can respond to that. <laughs> no, I, <clears throat> your point to a main, and, and by the way, here's a fact in a number. 85% of the people don't wind up in the NCI designated cancer centers and our academic centers. They're being treated, uh, you know, in the out, out setting. And yet the, these folks in the community setting frequently are under-resourced. Um, and in fact, as you just sort of said, we're layering on top things that they should be doing without layering on additional resources for them to get the job done. You know, I, uh, and, 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 and Dr. Brawley, you, you know, this, in fact, we first met when I was in Chicago at University of Illinois, where I actually had a dual role of being a cancer center director there of the you know, University of Illinois Cancer Center, but also the uh, associate vice president at that time of uh, community-based practice, which is a fancy title. Just so I ran the network of federally qualified health centers. There would be well-intentioned folk who wanted to do studies within the FQHC settings. And that's, a for those of you who don't know, that's part of the community health center, which was part of the act on, um, you know, making sure in the 1960s that people had access to care, poor people in particular. Um, the funny part about that is that when they would come in, well-meaning, well-intentioned, they would never ever come with additional resources that wouldn't disrupt my team. In fact, once I remember famously saying to someone, I love your research, I'm sure it's gonna be of value, but the reality is the number one job of my folks, right, in this FQHC, at this site, is to see patients that are, by the way, lined up in the hallway mm. to be seen. And if they're not seen here, then they wind up in the emergency room. So if you want to do research, what additional resources are you going to bring to the table so that you don't disrupt? I would actually say the same thing is true uh, with most of our community hospitals. And I think that the ACCC is actually doing a wonderful job in shedding light that there are community hospitals that are, you know, that have resources, but there are other community hospitals that do not. And we are fooling ourselves that we're giving the uh, uh, same care. It's not even separate and equal. It's separate and unequal in most cases. 
And we have to do a better job from policy perspectives on how the academic centers can partner better, how more it's going to be even bigger policies, how we can get more resources that are used appropriately to actually do those things that we know can help. But until we bring resources to the table, I think it's unrealistic to actually have our um, uh, our community hospitals be many, if you will, uh, NCI-designated cancer centers. It just will not work. You know, we've Without covered a couple of things here, uh, Dr. Wen. Uh, there's a bunch of folks who are out there into, we must get more minorities in the clinical trials, but they ignore the fact that, you know, minorities, the 97% of Americans don't go on the cancer trials, by the way, black or white, 90, 95 plus percent don't. And those who don't go on the trials don't frequently, if they're minority, don't get, or poor white as well, don't get adequate care. You know, we push clinical trials, but forget about the fact that a lot of folks aren't getting adequate care. They push screening programs that are of low yield. Yes, they do save lives, but they're of low yield when you look at the community as a whole, but they tie up resources like CT scanners and pathologists and so forth and, and bog down the system and make care for other diseases worse. And we got to think about all of these things. And then, of course, there's the folks who are heavily into the biological differences amongst the races, which we just talked about. All of these things to me, and this is all linking this to Tyree Nichols, some of those isms that caused those police officers to beat that poor man. Actually, we have our own version of those isms in medicine, a lot of them a lot of them that lead to biases, that lead to misapplication of science. Uh, keep in mind, uh, sometimes it's the willing who do the wrong thing, even. I mean, no, good no. people who want to do the right thing and they just don't understand. And they just don't understand. I, you know, or, or <clears throat> you know, that old thing, I think it's attributed to Mark Twain. Uh, <clears throat> it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. And frequently we go in without, again, the flexibility, the curiosity, the humility um, uh, of being able to set these programs up. For example, I still think that there is a role for not only screening, but prevention. And I think that the resources and the voices needed to uh, garner the resources to employ not just prevention in, you know, well-to-do places where there's a whole food, but prevention all over is actually a good strategy. Second, we do have to think about the reality is that there are a bunch of isms. We have isms of this person won't go on trial, well, because they're Black. We have the ism of, well, even if we screen this person, you know, what are we going to do without actually sort of saying, if you're going to screen, you ought to actually have the arc of screening that leads to the diagnostic screen, then to the therapy and the treatment already in place. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that these isms are actually frequently in the way of why, as we know in, in, through history and some of the literature, why people are offered certain therapies and others are not. Not because they could or couldn't, but because they but because they were never ants. And by the way, at the end of the day, in addition to race issues, there were class issues. 
And what's not being talked about with Tyree as well is not only his African-American status, but our class. And I think that when you start looking at both of those intersectionalities of being at Black in America, uh, as well as being poor in areas that, you know, whether you're talking about the hollers of Beattyville, Kentucky, or you're talking about the South Side of Chicago, there are more similarities in those in those two groups, and yet we fail frequently to speak about that. I'd have to say that when it comes to policing, it's probably true that African Americans, and it's not probably true, the data is there to 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 vet it out that African Americans certainly are pulled over more, treated more harshly, uh, and um, and and again, but what whether you're black. In that case, and whether you're from uh, whether you have money or whether you don't have money, but I guarantee you this: if you're black and you're poor, that becomes an issue. And again, these are the structural issues that we go in with our pre-biases, and that extends well beyond law enforcement into what we do also in medicine. Yeah, and I think I just would say we need to just be the way to to fight it is to first be cognizant of it, and then be able to hopefully develop. Uh, these conversations where policies will actually help us get through this uh, that don't exist today, that hopefully with some thoughtfulness and some acting, we can do better. Yeah. You know, and wrapping this up, uh, you said a word that I just want to reemphasize, and that was humility. Uh, I think the key to overcoming a lot of these problems in medicine is, and, and by the way, I should point out I don't think you have to be black to take care of blacks. As a matter of fact, my my uncle, uh, who was not a very educated man, but had some experiences in the healthcare system, used to always talk about how Jewish doctors understood him and took care of him well because they cared. So I think the key, and he would talk about, you know, the history of what Jews have gone through in terms of persecution and so forth as one of the reasons why they feared, understood, and felt what the patient in front of them felt. Now, that may be a little racist in itself, what he was doing, but I actually do think the point about humility, the point about caring about people, or just giving a damn, and the awareness that you might have some of these prejudices, and we all have them, is really important. So humility, caring about the patient, and awareness that we all have these prejudices and, and, and we need to overcome them. I think that's the solution to giving good, high-quality care, be you a, uh, a physician, a surgeon, a nurse, a medical student, a respiratory therapist, a lab tech, humility, caring about the patient, and then awareness that we have these problems and then trying to tamp them down. Uh, I'm going to let you have the last word, Dr. Wen. Well, thank you for that. And uh, I'll add only one thing, and that is having diversity at the table. I think when you can see your neighbor, whether they look like you or they don't, and you can see their humanity, we tend to be much better off than when we don't see each other's humanity. And I think that the only way to do that is by actually being mindful that um, access, not only to care, but access to becoming physicians, access to becoming um, directors of cancer centers, access to becoming deans, all that put together matter because we can disagree 
But if you're my neighbor and I see you and I get to hear you and your unique different uh, viewpoints, I'm more likely to hear you and your differences and to hear a counter argument from someone who I know and who I have a little bit of humility and respect for than someone that I don't. And I think that in addition, getting to know, and, and I think Michelle Obama said it better, get, let, we have to do a better job of getting to know our neighbors, even those that we don't actually agree with to hear counterpoints so that we may actually be able to sharpen even our own um, ideas uh, about why we think the way we are. So thank you for the opportunity, uh, Dr. Brawley, to, to talk about this. And I think the last word for me was, you know, not only may um, Tari rest in peace, but hopefully this deja vu all over again will be a little bit different. And we will hopefully at a minimum come out of this with some reasonable practical laws uh, that were, should have been put in place after George Floyd's death. Uh, we can only hope and hopefully that that uh, not only stimulates uh, a change in law, but hopefully we can learn in health uh, that there are also things that we need to work on so that we can be our best selves for the patients we serve. Thank you. Uh, this has been a discussion about healthcare and lessons for healthcare from uh, uh, the uh, unfortunate events of the last several weeks involving the beating of Tyree Nichols. I want to thank Dr. Robert Wen, the director of the Massey Cancer Center at Virginia Commonwealth University and professor uh, in the medical school at Virginia Commonwealth University and February's guest editor of the Cancer Letter. And I'm Otis Brawley. I'm the Bloomberg Distinguished Professor of Oncology and Epidemiology at Johns Hopkins. And I am the uh, co-founder of the Cancer History Project. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Cancer History Project podcast, podcasts of oral histories and interviews with the people who have shaped oncology as we know it. Our archives are available online for free at cancerhistoryproject.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at cancerhistproj. The Cancer History Project is a collaborative historical resource operated by The Cancer Letter. This is an ongoing project and would not be possible without the input and materials provided by our editorial board, our contributors, and the support of our sponsors, including Cedar sinai Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center, MD Anderson Cancer Center, and many others. View a full list of our sponsors at cancerhistoryproject.com sponsors. If your institution would like to participate in the Cancer History Project, email us at admin at cancerhistoryproject.com.